I'm so excited about this morning because I am, for many reasons, but uh, not the least of which, I'm beginning a brand new sermon series, brand new teaching series, and I'm calling it The Quest. The Quest. It is a series on the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. All right, okay. Ecclesiastes. Go ahead and turn in your Bible to Ecclesiastes. Turn to Ecclesiastes. Turn, turn, turn. Anybody? All right. Ecclesiastes 3. You know, I uh, uh, realized going through this Old Testament book, this ancient book of wisdom, Ecclesiastes, wow, does it speak with a modern voice. It speaks about uh, 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 despair, existential longing about the meaning of life, about where real wisdom can be found. And you turn on the news and the talking heads makes you think, whoo, the wise men are running low on wisdom. But when you turn to Ecclesiastes, it begins to really help you unpack. You know, what I've been shocked by is how popular the book of Ecclesiastes has been lately among young people. It's young people who can't get enough of Ecclesiastes, and it makes all the sense in the world. What should we see in young people? Should we not see vitality and humor and infectious energy? Instead, so many times, what do you see? Despair, longing, anxiety. Kids 16, 17 years old filled with anxiety? They should be filled with not a care in the world. No, filled with anxiety. And then there are those that uh, at a different stage of life, boy, Ecclesiastes has a word, you know, college students. Well, I'm looking, a study by Johns Hopkins University. They asked like, I don't know, 7,500 college students around the country. What do you want to get out of your job? 16% said a ton of money. They were honest. But 75% to find meaning and purpose for my life. That's a lot to ask out of a job. How many of you would say yes? As I look back on my career, that is where I found meaning and purpose for life. Yikes. That's a lot of pressure to put on a career, on a job. And then what about those of you that have achieved some measure of success, right? Either, if, you know, when you look at, at the big questions of life, the quest for purpose, the quest for meaning, you either fail to achieve and you're led to despair and anxiety and fear, or you do achieve, and that's almost worse. In 1996, uh, the famous journalist John Krakauer wrote about his expedition up Mount Everest. Maybe you read his book, Into Thin Air. And uh, 12 members of his uh, climbing group were killed in this highly publicized descent. And uh, here's what he writes in that book. This is from May 10th, 1996, when he reached, the, he reached the top of Mount Everest. Gets to the highest spot on earth, the roof of the world. He writes, straddling the top of the world, one foot in China and the other in Nepal, I cleared the ice from my oxygen mask, hunched a shoulder against the wind, and stared absently down at the vastness of Tibet. I'd been fantasizing about this moment and the release of emotion that would accompany it for many months. But now that I was finally here, actually standing on the summit of Everest, I just couldn't summon the energy to care. I snapped four quick photos, turned around, headed down. My watch read 1.17 p.m. All told, I'd spent less than five minutes on the roof of the world. 
Sir Edmund Hillary says the same thing. What, what was it like when you got the first one to summit Everest? Well, immediate rush of triumphal ecstasy for a fleeting moment, but then a sense of desolation, because where could I go from there? What mountains remain to be climbed? So is that it? Is it a cruel joke? Either you get what you want in life, or you don't get what you want in life, and that leads to despair, or you do get what you think you want in life, and that's even worse. Well, enter Ecclesiastes. Now, the Bible, you need to know, that the, the Ecclesiastes, let's set a little context. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. We need to set a little context. Ecclesiastes is part of a Bible book genre called wisdom literature, right? You all know this. The Bible is not one book. It's 66 books that tell one unified story of the redemption of God. Within that, you got history books that tell the chronology. You got the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. You got the Gospels. You got epistles. Well, you also got these wisdom books and that's exactly what they're for to give wisdom there are five wisdom books the first is proverbs proverbs is about a kingly father telling his son hey here's how life works you want to be wise you need to know how the world works here's how the world works and it gives you these nuggets of wisdom over and over and 140 characters or less here's how to live your life proverbs is old testament twitter here it is Here's what I've seen. Here's what I've observed. This is how life works. This is, how, this is generally how it goes. Psalms was Jesus' hymnal. Psalms are the prayer book, the hymn book of the Bible. And we love the Psalms because when we go to the Psalms, we find vocabulary for our faith. Whatever we're going through, we realize we're not alone. Somebody else has felt this way. Part, part of the reason we love the Psalms so much is, you know, King David, he's got this kind of schizophrenic faith, right? I mean, you got King David, a psalmist who's like, I love you, God, and the main reason I love you is you're always there for me when I cry. You are always there for me. Two Psalms later, where are you when I cry out to you? You are nowhere to be found, right? Now, who does that remind you of? Us. And so when we read, when we come to the Psalms, we realize there's vocabulary for faith. Then Song of Solomon, a celebration of the intimacy between a bride and a groom, and it hints at the ultimate one-day union of Christ and his church. That leaves two books. Job, if you're new to the Bible, you can find it in the index under Job, <laughs> and Ecclesiastes. Job and Ecclesiastes. Now, in a way, these two books of wisdom literature make the exact same point from opposite starting positions follow me here job is all about suffering you remember the story this uh this 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 runt this uh this angel that that, that thought he could challenge god satan cast out satan comes to god and says all these human beings are bums they don't love you not a single one and god says have you considered my servant job to which, of course, if Job had known about the conversation in the halls of heaven, Job would have been like, don't consider me. No, I'm, no, I'm good. Don't, nothing to see here. Move along. He says, now you only, Job only praises you because you've blessed him so much. Take away his blessing, he'll stop praising you. He says, all right, you can do this much and no, no further. You remember the story. He loses his, all his money, his livestock, his camels, his family. All the, everything's gone to the point where eventually his wife says, you ought to curse God and die. Which makes him think, what? Give me the camels, take her. You know, right? It's not in there, we don't know. Goes through all this tragic suffering and comes to the end and 
thinks, well, this is it. I mean, he has these conversations with these friends, and it's a story about suffering. Now, most people don't have a problem with suffering. They have a problem with undeserved suffering, right? We don't have a problem. When we hit our hand with a hammer and it hurts, we go, well, that's cause and effect. I'm not mad at anybody but myself. I shouldn't have been so careless. I get it. But what about undeserved suffering? Why, God? Why'd you have to take her? Why did this happen? Why did I, why did I get this diagnosis? Haven't I been good? Haven't we been a good person? It's undeserved suffering. Why us? Why? I don't deserve that. Ah, Now, most people have not suffered like Job, but they've gone through hard times. And so what they think is, I would be good had this tragedy not happened. If only I could have done this. In other words, it's circumstances. If this hadn't been taken from me, I'd be okay. If this hadn't been stolen from me, if this person hadn't been ripped out of my life, if I hadn't lost this child, if I hadn't lost this parent, if I, hadn't, if, if, if I had more financial resources, if, 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 if power hadn't been stripped away from me, if I had more friends or better friends, or if I had better religion, if I were part of this group, if my parents weren't so mean, if my teenagers weren't so mean, right? Whatever. If I could have grown up in a better environment, it's I call the if onlys. If only, if only, if only. In other words, if only I had perfect circumstances, if only I could get my hands on the stuff, then I'd be good. And the problem with all that is Ecclesiastes. Job is all about a guy who has nothing and says it's all meaningless apart from God. Watch this. Ecclesiastes is a guy who had everything and comes to the exact same conclusion that it's meaningless without God. Job makes the point from suffering. Ecclesiastes makes the exact same point from a guy who has everything. So here we go. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of Kohelet, the preacher, the seeker, the quester, the convener, the professor, the philosophizer. These are all ways people have translated this word, Kohelet. The words of, we'll call him the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's why we assume this is Solomon. Son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the Kohelet, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's futile. It's meaningless. What, uh, verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils at under the sun? Generation goes, generation comes, the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. <laughs> to the place where the streams flow, where they There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. (sighs) What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. You're like, haven't we heard this sermon before? Yeah, there's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? Nope. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is going to be a six-week series. (laughs) Solomon needs a hug. Wah, wah. 
Why is this book in the Bible? It is jarring to read the book of Ecclesiastes for this reason. We are so used to reading the Bible and coming to the Bible for answers. We go to the scriptures and we're looking for answers. Ecclesiastes is different. Ecclesiastes is not a book of the answers. Ecclesiastes is a book of the questions. In fact, Tim Keller once said, and I agree with him, if your Bible were arranged in theological order, not chronological order or, or you know, the order we have with the genres, but if your Bible were arranged in theological order, theologically, what you would want to do is this. You'd want to take the book of Ecclesiastes and unbind it from your Bible, move it to the very front of the Bible, drop it in, and rebind it. Why? Because the book of Ecclesiastes is going to push you. It's going to press you. Hey, what's the meaning of life? How can you be sure? Look around. Doesn't it sure seem meaningless? Doesn't a generation come and a generation go? How can you know? Is there any God? Does life have any meaning apart from God? How do you know? What are you doing with your life? Is there any purpose? You get through all that book of Ecclesiastes, and then you start Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now settle in. The rest of the Bible is going to answer the questions that are brought up in Ecclesiastes. Does that make sense? Ecclesiastes is pushing on you. It's, it's pressing. It's like a, like a philosophy professor. Did you ever have a, a humanities professor and, and she really pushed on you? She, she wouldn't be satisfied with a pat answer, what they call a Sunday school answer. Why did she do that? Because she was mad at you? No, 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 no. She wanted to press you to ask the hard questions. That's what Ecclesiastes is doing. He's bringing you to the logical conclusion of the positions you're taking in life. So the controlling question for the entire book comes from verses 2 and 3. Go back to verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There are many, many ways to translate vanity. Smoke. Mist. A little bit more than zero meaningless, but each of these have shades of meaning. Uh, uh, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Well, okay, perhaps the closest uh, might be futility. All is futile. If it's a treadmill, if life is all there is, if you die and then you're forgotten, what's the point? Here's the controlling question. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The question he's after is gain. Gain, he uses here specifically as in, as in profit. He is using a commercial business term here. What, what is your profit? Those of you in business, how do you define profit? It's very simple. Revenue, but that's not all. You can have a lot of gross revenue, but it's what? Revenue minus expenses equals profit. So you have a lot to show for your life. Okay, what did it cost you to get that? People say, well, I, I spent my whole life to get this. Great, now you have this, and it cost you your life, by your own words. You spent your whole life working to achieve this or that. So what'd you, what'd you get? What'd you get? What is it, what is it profit a man? Where is the gain? What, what? Now listen, I know, I know, I know it's, a, it's a Sunday in April, I get it, but here's my thing. Where else other than a church service can we ask these questions? If you can't ask them here, where can you ask them? Where can you just back up for a second and go, hey, hey, before we ask how and, and we get into all the minutia of life, let's ask why, what, what, what's going on? What, what is the profit that I'm getting out of my life? I, I mean, I've got some good things, but what does it cost me? What do you gain if you just go through life and then you die and lights out? Some of you have had this question forced upon you because of some cataclysmic event in your life. Often it is a tragedy. Because of some cataclysmic, life-altering event, you had to stop and ask, 
What does a man gain? What's the point of everything? It could have been a near-death experience. It could have been like my friend in high school who got uh, leukemia when he was 16 years old, and he battled through that. We thought we were going to lose him. When he came to the other side, he told us, you got to live every day like it might be your last. That, that, was, that, was, that was burned into his mind. He got it through a cataclysmic event. Others of you, it doesn't take a cataclysmic event to ask this question. It just takes what? Laundry. Now, I've never done a load of laundry, but I'm told. I'm, t- I'm told by those who have, just jokes, that when you're doing laundry, at some point it's dawned on every single person who's ever done laundry. If I do all this laundry and I do a good job, you know what will be waiting for me tomorrow? More laundry. And just when you think, could this get any more biblical, you look up and the detergent is literally called gain. And you're like, I, I, don't, I, can't, I can't even. What does a man gain? I remember being a little boy. Mama say, make your bed. I'm like, this bed? Yeah, the bed I'm about to sleep in in a few hours. Yes, make it perfect so that I can get in and completely mess it up again. Yes, am I putting this bed in a museum of bed furniture or something? Or it seems to me, right? There's no gain. I learned as a little boy, there is gain if you make your bed. You avoid a spanking and it's just better, you know, there's much gain. <laughs> you get the point. Why, why, why? It's futility. Well, you say, but that's, ah. That's for people who don't stop and think about their life. The people who are plugged in, the people who are tuned in, the people who think deeply and who are always watching the news, they're happy, right? Look at verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who watches 24-hour news increases sorrow. Some of you need to go on a news fast. Why? Ecclesiastes 1.18. And so, so, so if we don't think about anything, we're miserable. And if we do think about anything, it's worse. So back to the question. What does a man gain? What does a man profit by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If you say, well, I don't really like to think about questions like that. Oh, hold up, hold up. I know it's a big question. I know it's an April Sunday morning. And I know, well, I wasn't prepared to think about the big questions of life. You're coming to church. That's all we talk about is the big questions of life. So you're telling me you don't like to think about these questions. If you had a buddy call you up and say, hey, hey, hey. Yeah, man, what's up? Listen, Tuesday afternoon. This coming Tuesday? Yes. From 3 o'clock p.m. until 5 o'clock p.m., I need you to go to the corner of Highway 31 and Highway 278, 31 and 278, and I need you to stand on the northeast corner of 31 and 278, and I need you to stand there from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Tuesday. Great, thanks, bye, click. You would call them back. You would send them a text, no matter how much you trusted them, no matter how much, you would call them back, and you would have one simple question. Why on earth do you want me to do this? What's up your sleeve? Am I part of a protest? Am I, is this gonna be a rally? Is it, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to help. I'm happy to be wherever. That's no problem. But before I do that, I need to know why. Why? Here's why. Because you won't waste two hours of a Tuesday afternoon without knowing why. And yet you're telling me you'll go through your whole life and never ask why? What's it all about? What gives it meaning? Well, what are the best answers humans have come up with? 
Well, take God out of the equation. If God's out of the equation, I think the best that folks can do are some pretty broad answers to this question. The first is from a philosophy called humanism, secular humanism, atheistic humanism. This means a humanistic approach to life as in humans are the most important thing. We've got to love, we've got to care. There's no God but a, a humanist perspective. And you came from, according to this perspective, you came from chemical nothingness, and you'll return to chemical nothingness. Somehow these chemicals smashed into each other, and uh, along the way you need to work for peace, you need to work for uh, 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 good things, and you need to take care of each other. Why? Because a humanist would say the important thing is to leave the world a better place, to make a mark. And the professor says, you got to be kidding me. Seriously? You uh, came from nothingness. The, your life is going to burn out. In fact, the entire solar system is going to burn out one day, and you want to make a lasting difference? You're just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And Christians get called naive? That's naive to say, oh, I'm going to leave the world a better place. I'm going to make a mark. Look at verse 4. The professor says, no way. You're kidding yourself. A generation goes, verse 4, a generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Come on, you're gonna make a mark? Let me ask you something. Can somebody tell me about your great-grandparent? You had eight of them. Can you tell me about any? Somebody just blew your mind. Do the math. Yeah, you're right. Can you tell me about one of your eight great-grandparents? Okay, a few of you might. You might could. Tell me about your great-grandparent. You got eight of them. Can you tell me about just one? You can't tell me about all eight, can you? But you tell me about one. What about your great-greats? You had 16 of those. Tell me about them. Now, there may be a genealogy buff that's like, actually, I can tell you their names. You're the exception that only proves the rule. That is, that is great, great, y'all. That's not that far away. I don't know. You don't know. If you say, well, I can name one or two. Hey, they were one or two. Listen, those people were really, 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 really important in your life. If, 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 if only one out of those 16 didn't make it, you wouldn't be here, and yet you don't know them. That's exactly right. And, they, and, and, and the humanist says, we're going to leave the world a better place. We're going to make a mark. Oh, come on. By the time you're somebody's great, great, they won't know you either. That's terrifying to think about. Who's going to remember you in 40 years? I hope my kids. <laughs> Who's going to remember you in 140 years? Who's going to remember you in 1,400 years? You see what I'm saying? If you want somebody to remember you in 140 years, here's what you got to do. You got to make a donation uh, to a big donation to like a hospital or university and they'll name a wing after you. See? The B.J. Shelton wing of, you know. And then, and then what happens? Well, then, then uh, somebody will come along and give a little bit bigger donation and they'll say, who was B.J. Shelton? We don't remember him. Oh, the Rebecca Mickle wing, all right? It's, you know what I mean? You're not gonna be remembered in 140 years? What about 1,400 years? No one. You would have to conquer a country, a very significant country, to be remembered 400 years from now. Bill the Great. <laughs> and then 4,000 years from now, archaeologists will infer your existence. So humanism, I'm sorry, I don't buy it. If, if, if we're doomed, civilization is doomed, and there's no eternity, your life is just a footprint of the ocean. You're basically like a guy who studies sandcastles at the edge of the sea, here today, gone tomorrow. I don't buy it. And you're going to make a difference? Stop. So there's got to be a better answer Look at, look at verse 11. There's no, same thing, different wording. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. There's got to be a better answer. If all there is is life under the sun with no God, humanism, I'm sorry, I don't buy it. 
I find it very naive. And so is there a better answer? Go back to our question, verse three. What does a man gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? We won't spend a lot of time on this one, but I think there are, there are, there, there are humanists who would, who would say, okay, without God in the equation, let's just be honest about it. And the, this is a school of philosophy called existentialism. And I think the existentialists, if I understand them correctly, Sartre and Camus, they would say, Nietzsche especially, they would at least be honest and they would say, you're right. You're right. There is no meaning. And in the face of all this meaningless, I will have meaning. I will love anyway. I will stare into the abyss. It's all meaningless, but I'll stare down the abyss and I'm gonna love even though there's no tomorrow. And I'm gonna do all these things. I'm gonna, that sounds so noble and so cool. It has a fundamental flaw. The deconstructionists who say, the existentialists who say, everything, nothing has meaning. It's all meaningless. If everything's meaningless, then the words your philosophy is spouting right now is also meaningless you're sawing off the branch of reality upon which you're sitting and so if nothing has meaning you've like set fire to your own philosophical house so i don't buy that either so now we're at a point in the sermon where you're like oof nothing has meaning and the humanist answer isn't good and the existentialist answer isn't good and we're just chemicals that have smashed into each other and then we're all going to die and the whole universe is going to burn out I'm going to a Jimmy Buffett concert. (laughs) You know? And that's the third of the great philosophies. Not Jimmy Buffett, but (laughs) hedonism. Hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. If there's no God, eat, drink, and be merry. Just live, laugh, love. Tomorrow you die. That's hedonism go after pleasure because that's all there is and you can get pleasure in lots of ways you know, a work of creativity or hugging a child and and your grandkid and all oh, that and, and don't look at the big picture just find pleasure in everyday life distract yourself don't think about the future movies and blockbusters and blockbusters come out every summer by the way that's why the popularity of blockbusters every summer they are a great escape because we need to escape because when you stop and think about that question it's too much so you just sort of distract yourself you go into to um, uh, what I call ostrich mode. Legend has it that the ostrich has a very unusual defense mechanism. Legend has it, I don't know if this is true, but legend has it when the, when the, when the predator, the wolf or whatever comes, the ostrich to, pr- to protect itself from the wolf buries its head in the sand. Whew, no wolf down here. <laughs> to which of course the wolf is saying, you know I can see you, I'm about to eat you. Ooh, good to be safe from the wolf down here, right? That's the life of a hedonist. Now, I was watching a, a, a television show. Uh, Jackie and I were, were, were watching a show, and um, it was one of these uh, one of detective crime things. And uh, at the end, and I, again, I wouldn't have noticed this stuff, but uh, I was also fired up about Ecclesiastes. Uh, at the end, they're, they're sitting down, they've solved the case, and it's about, the, it's just, it's, of course, they're all insane. But basically, a guy, everybody thought he was dead, but he wasn't. So he got to hear his own funeral, but he was really alive, the whole thing, uh, spoiler alert. And uh, uh, we watch really quality programming at our house. And uh, uh, at the end, they're sitting there, and, and one detective, it's a male and a female, and one detective asks the other, would you want to know what people say when you're dead? And uh, the guy replies, I don't care. She said, you don't mean that. 
He said, I do. You can say good things. You can say bad things. I'll be dead. I'll be gone. It's all childish vanity to know what you want to say. And she said, well, I think I would want to know. He says, no, you wouldn't. When you're dead, you're dead. And that's it. And then right then the server brings the ice cream sundae. And he goes, when you're dead, you're dead. And that's it. Until then, there's ice cream. And he digs into the ice cream. And I pause it. I'm like, you see that? That's hedonism. That's making a joke of what is eternal. And everybody laughs. and goes, yeah, you know what? There's ice cream. And that little smack of sugar on the dopamine receptors makes us think, yeah, that hot fudge sundae is good. I won't think about death. Jackie's like, you are fired up about Ecclesiastes. But that's it. Isn't that it? Isn't that it? Hey, let's answer this question. Let's just have ice cream instead. So if it's not humanism and it's not existentialism, what is it? This is what Ecclesiastes is doing. The professor is pushing you to show you there's no middle ground. Either there is a God and all that goes with that, or there is nothing under the sun but meaningless. There either is a God or your origins are nothingness and your eternal destiny is annihilation. Either or. You can't have it both ways. You can't say there's no God, but I can still find meaning in life. No. So what's the application? You can't have it both ways. You're either going to be sold out entirely for God or everything is hopeless and meaningless. And Ecclesiastes is driving you like a nail to that point with penetrating insight, incisive like a surgeon cutting through all the nonsense, cutting through all the joking. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just have ice cream. That's all right. Live, laugh, love. No, 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 no. You are going to face eternity. And if, if nothing, this is all there is. Let's deal with that. That's what Ecclesiastes does. Now, we have got to close with some hope. Because I'm getting kind of worried thinking back about how I've built this sermon. And I'm pounding away that everything under the sun is meaningless. It's all meaningless. There's no point. To, and I'm, I'm having this like nightmare. I'm seeing it unfold that like no one's going to come back next Sunday. <laughs> like I'm picturing you all in a recliner with like soda cans everywhere. You're covered in like Dorito crumbs. It doesn't matter, kids. Belch, Pat crush. <laughs> Pastor Tom says it doesn't. Hey, don't make your beds. Why? Vanity of vanities, right? Um, so the answer, here's what you need to know. Here's why you need to come back next Sunday. The answer is, and Solomon will do this, it's placed in a riddle. It's right here in this verse. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils at under the sun? You're going to hear that phrase over and over in Ecclesiastes. Under the sun, you're not going to find it. Under the sun, you won't find it. What if that's on purpose? What if he is driving you to the logical conclusion that life lived under the sun, not above not the heavens, but under the sun, is meant to bring you to the point where you see that if all life is, is life under the sun, we are greatly to be pitied. If all there is, is life under the sun, it is meaningless. And Ecclesiastes is meant to drive you, even if it takes driving you to the point of despair, until you what? Until you ask this question, then is there anything beyond the sun? Life under the sun is not going to get you there. But praise God, we live for something that is beyond the sun.
that is higher than the sun. We live for the one who is the maker of the sun, you see? And the Bible even says God designed that on purpose. He put a God-sized hole in each of your heart. He subjected you to this Ecclesiastes vanity. The word vanity, in the, it's, it's used, the same word. Look at Romans chapter eight. It says God did this on purpose. For creation was subjected to vanity. They translate it here, futility. In other words, God did this, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that what? In hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God did this in such a way to drive you to a point, to drive you like a nail to press you to seek after God. So it is Doritos and soda can and meaningless if all there is is life under the sun. If, if we don't have a God, if we don't have Easter, if we don't have Jesus risen from the dead, if we don't have all this stuff, if we don't have the word of God, it is meaningless. Oh, but if we didn't come from nothing, if in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if that is all true, then everything is shot through with glory. Everything, everything. You won't do a single thing today that is not that cannot be done for the glory of God. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And suddenly you realize, if that's true, it all counts. It all counts. Some of you are gonna be in Walmart and it counts for the glory of God. And you're thinking, this doesn't count for the glory of God. I'm just buying my deli meat. I'm just buying my lunch meat. You're standing there waiting for them to fill the order and somebody next to you, you strike up a conversation. After a short time, you realize you're distantly related. <laughs> you begin talking a little bit more and a little bit more, and they ask you where you come from all dressed up, and you say, well, I've been at church, and you talk about, oh, I haven't been in church in a while, and then uh, two weeks later, they run into another friend, and they talk a little bit more about church, and then two weeks after that, something else strikes them, and they get saved, and four billion years from now, in glory, they come up to you and say, hey, you remember seeing me in Walmart that day? Yeah, well, that wasn't nothing. Oh, it was something to me. And that little moment was infused with glory. Why? It all matters. Everything matters. You have never met a mere mortal if, it, if, if life is beyond the sun. On this, uh, 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 whether, it's, whether it's meeting somebody and, and just having a conversation or a smile or all these things or, 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 or changing a diaper at 4 a.m. of your infant child, whatever, it all. And even, and even, I tell you, even shot through with glory. Laundry. Because in the beginning, he took chaos and he made order. And there you're taking a, the chaos of clothes out of the dryer and folding them and creating order and doing it to be a blessing to your family for the glory of God. Everything is shot through with glory if there is a God. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a lengthy poem this is a book, uh, Aurora Lee. And uh, she has a character in there make this point. And I, I love it. It's, it's, it's got some ancient language, I know. But uh, if you can see what she's saying. And truly, I reiterate, nothing's small. No lily-muffled hum of a summer bee, but finds the coupling with the spinning stars. Her point is, even the things we see are shadows to point us to God. There's no, everything is shot through with glory. No pebble at your foot, but proves a sphere. No chaffinch, but implies the cherubim. And glancing on my own thin-veined wrist, in such a little tremor of the blood, the whole strong clamor of a vehement soul doth utter itself distinct. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every bush a fire 
with God. Everywhere she looks, and it's easy to do in springtime, earth is crammed with heaven. But you're not going to find it under the sun. And, 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 and Ecclesiastes is going to go 12 rounds with this. We're only going to go six weeks. But he's got 12 chapters where he's going to say, been there, done that. I'm telling you, you're not going to find it under the sun. And you are going to find great refreshment for your soul. To those of you who are not yet believers, this book is going to get in your face and challenge you. To those who are believers, there's going to be such encouragement and refreshment and, yes, a little bit of conviction to ask, why would I ever live for what is under the sun? No, no, no. I'm going to set my affections on that which is beyond the sun. And with this, we begin our deep dive into Ecclesiastes. Let's pray. God, grant to us wisdom that we would know that under the sun we won't find what we're looking for because what we're looking for cannot be found under the sun. The one we're looking for is actually looking for us and we confess we know exactly who it is. It's the risen son, Jesus, who has ascended by the power of the Holy Spirit speaking to us even now, today, this morning. God, forgive us when we try to find meaning in that which is under the sun. Instead, let us fix our eyes on you, the one who is beyond the sun, so that we can infuse, we can see how you infuse everything under the sun with meaning. God, thank you that we don't just have to say, well, leave a mark. Thank you that we're not hopeless. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to despair. Thank you that we can be set free. If there's anybody here who's not yet a believer, oh God, let today be that day. Don't let them go another day in the meaninglessness of pursuit of things under the sun. Don't let them go another day. And for the believers, give them a refreshment. Let Ecclesiastes be a jolt of spiritual energy to begin to see that earth is crammed with heaven and every bush of fire with God. Grant us that. In Jesus' name, amen.